Well, the subject um, today, as Gideon mentioned, is uh, God hears, uh, God sees, God knows, and God remembers. And we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1, reading from verse 8. We'll read that together, but just uh, unfortunately I wasn't here for the, uh, the two opening addresses on, on Exodus. But um, I'm assuming that the, the cover has been done. Uh, that we have a situation here where the uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob have found themselves after uh, Joseph's uh, being brought, taken down to Egypt and the famine, uh, the situation that the people of the, the sons of Jacob and their offspring found themselves in Egypt um, living and growing uh, and dwelling in that uh, place in Egypt. And if we read together from verse 8, that this is the beginning of a new era. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and in the event of war that they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labour, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor, in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorous, rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shifrath, and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew woman to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God, that he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. And then just a couple of verses in chapter 2, verse 23. <clears throat> now it came about in the course of these many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage, rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, 
And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. I think it's worth just spending a little bit of time in um, just contemplating the situation that seems to have developed in Egypt. It's um, certainly one of the things that I've thought about, about that is to consider why God allowed this situation. It seemed at the time when, he, when Joseph was uh, taken down to Egypt, God's plan was for the benefit of Jacob's offspring, that because of the famine that was coming, there was a preparation being made in God's forward planning. And uh, so the, the rise of Joseph and the knowledge and the business acumen that Joseph had benefited not only Egypt, but the surrounding countries, so that many lives were saved by it. And so, because of that situation, because of the establishment of Joseph in a very powerful position in Egypt, then it drew his brethren, and they thought, and we wonder, the question is, was that the right thing to do? Because God's uh, plan, if you like, God's uh, promises to Abraham had been that Canaan was going to be the land that he was going to put his name to. So why would they go down to Egypt? And it's, it's something that I think I do a lot, and I'm sure you do, is we question God. We think, what, what is he playing at? Um, what, were the, what were the reasons behind it all? And I think it's something that maybe we sh God wants us to do, but the end result should always be that God's always right, and we should trust him. And so when you look at this situation, you do scratch your head a bit and think, well, how did they get there anyway? Why did they not just wait until after the famine and then go back uh, and, and live in the land that God had told them about? But there was teaching, and it was necessary, uh, as we look at it now, years and years later, that we've got to see the bigger picture. We've got to see God's hand and the purposes of God. And sometimes, and in many times, there's a necessity for suffering. There's a necessity for teaching through the experiences that God allows in our lives. And so as we look at this, I think we also just need to be looking at what is it a shadow of? That when we look at, first of all, the fact that we started in verse 8, that there arose in Egypt a king who didn't know Joseph. It's a picture that you can very clearly align to today, that there are arising many kings in this world who don't know Joseph. And by that, I mean, don't know God and don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see it even in our lifetime that so-called Christian countries are no longer Christian countries. And I suppose we've very much got to the fore at the moment, the rise of a man in North America 
who has a big question mark over how much he knows Joseph or he knows the Lord Jesus Christ because of some of the things he's saying and some of the things he's threatening to do. There's a question mark. But that's not just America. I mean, there, throughout the world, there are many people like that. And immediately the alarm bells ring that uh, it's not a case that he didn't know the history of Joseph. He didn't know what Joseph had done and how powerful he had been and how important he had been to Egypt and how he had saved Egypt because of his forward planning. That had all, when it says he didn't know him, he probably knew about him, but he didn't know and appreciate him. And that's, of course, the same when we're talking about Christ. Many people know about Jesus Christ, but it's not very different to be able to say you appreciate him, understand him, and know where he came from. So the establishment here of, of this uh, new Egypt is a, an, a, a development that comes up with starting with not knowing where these people, these Hebrews had come from and how important they had been through Joseph in the first place, that the fear comes in. And you see the working of Satan here, that this is what happens, this is how Satan works, that he puts fear into the hearts of those who are self-centered and selfish and are more concerned with their own things. And uh, they see the threat, they put the seeds of doubt and it get, escalates. And this is what is happening here, is that they're looking and they're thinking, right, these Hebrews seem to be getting stronger. They seem to be becoming more powerful. They're a threat to us. They're a threat to our way of life. And therefore, their selfish ambitions were being challenged because they were thinking, well, what if? What if there's a war? How can we trust these people? Uh, they're not us. They're not like us. They're different. And it's the way Satan works as he does it. And he puts it into the hearts and minds of people today against Christianity, against lovers of Christ, as they are a threat because they're different. And their laws are designed in Satan's subtle way to draw people away from the laws of God. To justify their action, they bring out false accusations and things get blown out of uh, proportion. And again, maybe it's a bit unfair at this stage to keep talking about Trump, but just listening to some of his rhetoric, uh, it, he's somebody that's like that. He's, he's making noises that you scratch your head and think, where on earth did that come from? Where is he get, why is he instilling the fear? Why is he instilling the doubt? And is this something that's really sinister that could develop into something that is divisive and is effectively anti-God? And you can see the, how Satan works here. And this is how way back thousands of years ago in Egypt that this was this rhetoric coming from Pharaoh and from the other leaders 
I imagine in that land we're, we're just putting the fear into the people of Egypt worry about these these uh, people, these Hebrews when they then imposed taskmasters it's again another sign of the control and establishing taskmasters again it, it, it's always frightening to think there's always seems to be um, people who are willing to do the dirty work if you like to take the front and to be aggressive the uh, death camp commandants <laughs> the soldiers that are prepared to um, meet out torture etc these are people that you just can only think Satan has entered and that Satan's active in their lives and he's just controlling them but the whole picture really just painting here is that what I believe was in the mind of God as, as this was developing was to appreciate and understand the bitterness of slavery I think one of the things that in order for us to appreciate our salvation we need to understand where we came from and what we've been saved from and what could have happened and I think you know that if we try to understand the mind of God surely this is what he was teaching in it all that as the people of Israel seem to sink further and further into the depths of subjection to slavery and that things got worse and worse that he was taking them to a point when they would need him and it's unfortunate of course that in mankind that's always been the case that if we're comfortable and we are happy with our lives and we have everything we need then the likelihood and the need for us to turn to God becomes less and less important in our lives and it's the people who are suffering who are struggling that cry unto God it's a, a sad fact of life if you like that there, even in our lives, if, you're, if you analyse it and are honest with yourself, you maybe think that the times when you're closest to the Lord is the time when you are suffering, when you are struggling, when you are in fear and doubt. So, we just turn to the, the two midwives. I, I don't know whether there was only just two. I, I, I hadn't really realised that until I read it this time. There was only, only two. I just thought there was only two mentioned, but it seems to read as if there were only two. And I had this picture of, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of women giving birth and <laughs> two women running around <laughs> trying to cope. Um, I don't know um, whether it was there was, we think, just two. Whether these two were actually Hebrews, I mean, they are referred to as Hebrew midwives, or they might have been wives dealing with the Hebrews, or midwives dealing with the Hebrews. Um, the fact that Pharaoh um, went to them and commanded them would seem to indicate that they weren't Hebrews. 
and when he talked about them and when they reported back, they talked about these Hebrew women. Uh, is it almost as if not us? <laughs> uh, but I don't, I don't know for sure, um, and probably it doesn't really matter. There were um, two of them who you read of feared God or revered God. And that's the, the important part here, is that when Pharaoh commanded them to kill the males, they disobeyed Pharaoh. It begs the question a bit, that when is it right for us not to be in subjection to those that have the rule over us? <laughs> uh, when is it right for us to oppose uh, the laws of the country? Well, I think the answer to that is when they are opposed to the laws of God. And I think it's something that maybe we've been very fortunate in, in the years gone past that Britain particularly has been a pretty law-abiding uh, uh, or we've had governments that have ad adhered fairly well to the laws of God in the past. But we can see that's changing. And there's laws coming out now which certainly uh, go against the laws of God. And it challenges Christians as to, well, where do you stand in this? If the laws of the country tell you to do this, and that's against the law of God, what are you going to do? And this is a place where you have to stand up and be counted. And these, these women, I believe, they made that choice because they feared God. And that fearing God is a, a picture of two women who understood God and who understood the laws of God. Now, how, what they had and how they did that, I don't know. Uh, that might lean towards them being Hebrews, or at least being very close to the Hebrews, and knowing the God of the Hebrews. Um, but certainly, they knew God, and they were strong enough to be able to, um, I was going to say, be, deceive Pharaoh rather than necessarily lie to him, because they didn't lie to him, because they were telling the truth. These Hebrew women were bearing children very quickly, much quicker than the Egyptians, and that was probably, I'm sure it was true. Uh, but then they used that as a good excuse for making sure that, well, it was too late, <laughs> uh, we couldn't do what you asked. But they had no intention of doing that anyway. But the thing is, God was watching and controlling that situation. And I think that's the important thing, again, that in the, the difficulties and the troubles, when you question the mind of God, is why didn't God go in there and sort it out? He did it in his way. He did it in the way we read here, through two women. And through the fact that they were people, uh, two women who loved him, who... <coughs> feared him and who were subject to him and by doing that they were able God controlled the situation I don't know we don't know uh, how many baby boys died maybe there were some um, we don't know um, but What was important, I think, in it 
was, I think, for the Hebrews then to see the hand of God working through these midwives. I think it's... Um, when you think about God looking down and seeing his people, the people that he loved, being um, dealt with in such a way, um, you wonder about the mind of God as to how, what he feels about this. It made me think when I was just <clears throat> meditating and thinking about this, as God was watching this and controlling through these midwives, that um, it made me think about the stoning of Stephen. That um, one of the, the, the remarkable things about that is, again, the same, a similar sort of situation where <clears throat> God's looking down and he sees a righteous man in Stephen preaching according to God's will and telling the truth. And because of it, and because of evil men around him, he was getting dragged out and going to be stoned. And he, Stephen looks up and he sees the, uh, a window in heaven. And he sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of glory. And you think, why did God not intervene there? But you get the picture of, you know, that the Lord Jesus says that when he went back into heaven... He sat down at the right hand of God. That when Stephen saw him, he was standing. And it's just a picture of the indignation, the righteous anger of the Lord Jesus standing, watching, but not intervening. And I think it's only that to me, it was just, it, it was a, it's a lovely picture of the strength of God that. God allows things to happen that we maybe would question and think, well, you know, what, what are you playing at? Well, why don't you stop that? That can't be right. That's evil. It's going on there. Why don't you stop it? But in the purposes of God, we have to stand back and say, there's a purpose in it. If God wanted, if you like, Stephen to be stoned, or he certainly allowed it, and the purposes that come out of that, and how many people have been won? For the Lord because of Stephen. How many people have were there um, saw the, 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 the strength in that man and listened to him calling out about the, going into your hands I give you my life. That he gave his life so willingly for the Lord and people were saved by that. And as we've millions have read about it since and been affected by it. Who are we to question the mind of God? So I go back to the, <coughs> in Egypt again, you see the hand of God controlling the situation. And while things seem on the outside by man to be getting worse and worse, and the cry surely is, where is God? What's the purposes of all this? It just says, you know, in, when you go on to the chapter 2, that it said that the cry rose up to God. I think um, the interesting thing to me in that verse was it rose up to God. 
I think you can get people who moan, who complain about their lives. They've not got this, they've not got that, things could be better. Why am I? Why have I got the flu? <laughs> why, why am I feeling so down? Um, moan, moan, moan. That's not what's referred This was a cry that went up to God. What's the difference? Well, it's bringing God into it, of course. I'm sure there were lots of them moaning. But there came a point when the people were crying and their cry rose. Now, it's almost again that God is, is, is waiting. God is looking for the desire in the people. And some, as I said at the very beginning, sometimes it, it's necessary for us to be brought low and suffering in order for that to happen. That we actually turn our heads up and we pray and we lift our voices and they rise up. It's not that God didn't know what was going on before. It wasn't that it wasn't until they cried to God that God sort of woke up and thought, oh, I didn't realise what was going on down there. Of course he knew. He was waiting though for the cry to rise up because he wanted them to invite him to do something about it. He wanted this oneness with them. And that's of course is the same. We learn about that today. That's what God wants from us is it to have him in our lives, part of our lives. And so when the cry goes up, it's an inviting involvement of the majesty on high. We need to go to a higher place. We need to be going where God is. We need to be recognising that he is above, that he is all supreme. And despite things happening that we don't like and feel feels out of control. Nothing is out of control with God. So involve him. Keep close to him. It says in verse 24, you know, that God heard. He heard their groaning. The, the word is a, a Hebrew word, shama. I looked it up when I, in the back of my Bible here. And it's, it's attention to respond and that's just it seemed to just sum up exactly what I've just been trying to say there that when that God heard it wasn't him hearing for the first time or hadn't heard it or hadn't heard the call before this is now uh, the point where it's got his attention to respond the point had been reached that he'd been waiting for and God it says remembered he remembered his covenant. And again, it's not that God had forgotten and then he had remembered. <clears throat> again, it's just a, a word. It's the timing of his action. God doesn't forget anything. So it's just, again, the use of the English word here against the Hebrews word is that when it, God remembered, it was that this is the time now. This is the time for action because I have a plan. And I had given that plan to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And now I'm going to be putting it into action here and sort this out in my way, in the way that I've deemed is right. <coughs> and then lastly, in verse 25, that God saw the sons of Israel and God, in my Bible it says, took notice of them. 
and in the, in the margin of it, it says that he knew them. And again, you think, well, what does that mean? And again, I think it's just a lovely picture that these people were the promised people. They were the ones that God had put his hand on. They were the ones that were the offspring of Abraham. And through the, the faith of Abraham, there had come this who, people who were going to be his people. And he had made promises and he was going to keep his promises. And so therefore, when it says that God took notice of them, uh, it was a case of, I know who they are. They're my people. And therefore, my promises will always prevail. And again, this is where we, we can just rejoice in it. That you see, as God, a God who changes not, dealing with the people of Israel, as he never forgot them. He knew them, and he knew them intimately, and he had knew the promises that he'd made to them, and he was going to keep them. And here, there was the beginning of something that was going to be tremendous as far as the history of this world was concerned. And it's exactly the same <clears throat> as we see it today in God's dealing with us. We are his people. He's made promises to us. <clears throat> he knows us. And therefore, what he has promised to us he's going to do and he'll do it in his way and therefore don't let us question him that when things go wrong in our lives and things don't happen as we think they should do and why is our life my life your life not absolutely perfect it's because God's hand is in our lives and he has purposes and he's wanting to teach us in order that we might call on him in order that he might be involved in our lives. And here you're seeing the beginning of it with the people of Israel. And as we read on later, you're going to see how God got involved to an extent that he'd never got involved with a people like this before. And you're seeing the mind of God in action, dealing with a people he loved, a people of promise. And that is what we are today, the new covenant. New Testament people, and it's the same God. Shall we pray?